Welcome to Climate Pulse, where each episode we'll be discussing how climate disruption is impacting our health and well-being. Today's guests are Professor of Environmental Genomics Joel Meyer from the Environmental Toxicology Program at Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment, and Dr. Robert Tai, Associate Professor of Medicine at Duke University School of Medicine. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. So when I think about the impacts we're seeing from our changing climate, you know, from increasing temperatures to more powerful storms, prolonged droughts, etc., environmental toxicology is not the first thing that jumps <laughs> to mind. Perhaps that's because I really don't know all of which that entails. So, Joel, can you help me out here? Can you explain to me a little bit about what environmental toxicology is? Yeah, sure. So environmental toxicology is basically the study of the effect of pollutants or possibly other environmental stressors on health. And so that entails understanding how do those pollutants get out into the environment, how do they move around in the environment, how are they changed, and how are we exposed to them. And so these may be things that we intentionally produce. So people often think of things like pesticides. We make them because they're useful, but they also have some some negative effects. And so we try to balance those appropriately. And in, as a toxicologist, you try to understand enough about the, the toxic effects to appropriately balance that with, with the positive effects. Other things we make unintentionally, like air pollution, when we drive our cars or burn coal for electricity. Um, and then we can be exposed by to these by the food we eat or by the air we breathe, by the water we drink, sometimes occasionally dermally, for example, dust in our homes or stuff we put on us. And so toxicology is really environmental toxicology, the study of these, the, the, there's a chemistry part, the chemicals in the environment, how they move, how we're exposed, and a sort of a biology part, what they do to us once they're in us. Joel, in addition to these um, man-made toxins we have in the environment from these things you say you know, we use to help our lives you know, improve in some ways but also hurt us, mm-hmm. are there also natural toxins we deal with in the environment? Absolutely. There are lots of them. So uh, toxins can be produced, for example, by algae. The the red tide in Florida has been in the news recently. So uh, certain types of blue-green algae make these very potent toxins, actually. There are a lot of other naturally occurring toxins in plants and animals. There are also things like metals that we don't create, but we change the way in which we are exposed to them because we use them by mining and by industrial processes. So absolutely. Okay. And then there's other things I imagine like um, I, I get the allergies really bad in the springtime, even in the fall sometimes. Are there other natural things that impact our respiratory system? Sure, yeah. So this is something Rob can tell us a whole lot about, but you know, there, there are allergens. There, there are things like pollen that affect us. Uh, we could go down a pretty long list on this one. <laughs> okay, thanks for that. Maybe Rob, and we, as we go on with our story, we can get into that a little bit more. Sure. Okay, so air and water are big players in this, Rob. How did these toxins get into the body, and how do they affect the body once they're in there? Yeah, so, I mean, there are a variety of different ways that the toxins can get inside of us, um, and I think Joel had alluded to a couple of them. Um, any interface, essentially, to the outside world is an area where toxins can, uh, can interact. So when you think about interfaces in our bodies, we have, obviously, our skin as being one of those, and so... Uh, dermal sources of toxic toxicants are, are an important cause. Things we eat, so again, another surface, so within our intestines um, and the interactions with toxins with our intestines. And then also uh, in terms of breathing. And so as we breathe in air, 
so at each of these interfaces, there are important sites where, where toxins can collect. Can you give us an example of each one of those as, as far as a, something can affect your skin, something you eat, and then something you can breathe in? Yeah, so certainly, um, you know, a lot of any of us who have ever worn really cheap jewelry, uh, every so often there's somebody who gets uh, an allergic reaction to that cheap jewelry, and it's usually one of the, the submetals that's sort of mixed in there. Um, and so that's an example of one of them. Um, you know, I think people have talked about, um, you know, gluten sensitivity is something that we eat that then gives people um, indigestion. Uh, and that's, you know, an example in that uh, category, though um, you can find a, a variety of other ones, uh, things that cause uh, even things like cancer. So one of the, you know, uh, if you chew or smoke tobacco, one of your consequences is that you're more at risk for cancers, both in your mouth and, uh, and then along in your intestinal tract as well. Um, so those are uh, options too. And, and then obviously, you know, air pollution is one of those things that uh, as we're breathing in is something that is man-made and is a toxicant and is known to cause uh, a variety of respiratory complications. Can you tell us about an example of a... Uh, toxin that would cause like neurological issues? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think, you know, th there have been a variety of different of the heavy metals in particular that have been associated with neurodevelopmental problems, um, either in sort of the extremes, so in young kids or even in older adults. Um, and a lot of those are sort of not man-made, they're, they're here, but they're they're used in our natural environment or in our in industrial environment uh, in a way that we get exposure to them over time. And so that's an example. Uh, there's been some discussion in the literature over time of, of the really, really small particles of air pollutants, and those can actually seem to get into the circulation and have a potential to get into the brain and some sort of early studies suggesting some brain-related effects of those. Um, so th I think all those things are, are definitely possible um, and certainly things that we're experiencing in our environment. We used to hear about in, in the news um, lead poisoning, for example, from paint mm -hmm. and the like. And also, I mean, the, the, the phrase mad as a hatter came from people using mercury, I believe, to clean the brims of hats and that sort of thing. So it's changed over time also. Yeah, I know. And, and, and even um, when we think we remediate these environments, we, we also find that there still are these longer-term effects. And there are even in the city of Durham areas where, where lead um, and lead poisoning is actually still quite high, um, some of it from runoff and some of it from uh, uh, other sources. So these things still remain um, to be problems even though we are aware of them, um, which is sort of an int interesting in its own right. Um, so I'm going to ask a question to, to, to think about this in a little bit more detail to see if, if this works and is of interest to our audience here. What is it about metals, specifically these heavy metals, that, that impact our neurological system? Can you go into the details a little bit about that, or is that getting a little bit too complicated. I mean, I think as, a, as an earth and climate scientist, we deal a lot with the, the sort of metals and minerals that come out of the ground, and some of these have more toxicity than others. Yeah. I think about mercury and arsenic in water is a big problem in certain places, especially in the South Asian regions. And all these seem to have something in common that once they get into your system, they, they kind of stick around and they have this impact in a way that silicon doesn't or, or carbon or calcium doesn't, you know? Can you explain to me a little bit how this works? Well, 
one of the things that's true is that metals are used normally in our bodies for normal processes. For example? So, so iron is, is something that's used within our body, um, as, and they usually tend to be used in enzymatic reactions to facilitate those reactions. So, so there are, in a lot of these circumstances, these metals that are toxic in this level are actually you know, toxic because they're maintained in, in the body um, and there's, uh, there sort of is already a setup for wanting to have certain metals, but not at the concentrations that may exist in some of these circumstances, uh, to favor sort of normal uh, processes that occur in the body. Um, the, the other problem with metals is that there's not a good way to clear them. And so uh, once they end up, uh, particularly for some of the heavier metals, they, once they end up in the body, they're hard to get rid of. So then you, they, they bio-persist, as the term would be used, mm -hmm. uh, and they remain for longer periods of time unless there's some way that you, we artificially leach them out. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, people who, um, in certain circumstances, you really would try to get rid of some of these metals, but it's a very difficult process. So I think it's a combination of the fact that our our bodies are set up to use metals because that's an important part of, uh, of how they function. They are not very well cleared. Um, and the really concern is when you're getting levels that are abnormally high from where you would normally expect them to be there. Now, now one thing I find interesting about this that we're you know, getting back to our conversation about climate, I'm not sure you can think about how metals might be impacted by climate also, but think about these what they call persistent organic pollutants. Also, and Joel alluded to this in his his introductory marks, um, those also bioaccumulated. They also build up in the body. Um, can you talk a bit more, Rob, about how um, these these organic materials you know, build up in the body and what we can do to flush them out, if anything? Yeah, I think um, this is something that's uh, more commonly thought about in recent times than I think it has been in the past. Um, is you know we tend to think about toxic exposures as sort of being just these single acute events. But the reality is we're understanding is it's really the cumulative effect of these things that can be maintained uh, for long periods of time. Uh, and, and generally in the body when that occurs, they occur into sites where there's just either not the mechanism for understanding how to clear it because it's something that's foreign enough to the body that it doesn't really have a normal way to, to manage that, uh, or they're managed into spaces because some of them may be more uh, lipophilic, for an example, so they're more prone to hang out with fat cells mm -hmm. um, and things that are normally sites of storage for the human body, so our fat is designed to store energy, and so if something is lipophilic and can be maintained in a fat store, then it'll stay there because it's the body's thinking that it's supposed to keep it there, and then they can be gradually leached over time. And these persistent organic pollutants tend to really be lipophilic, or they really like fats. Yes, yes. Okay. And so most most often when you're when you're looking at things that are going to be maintained for long periods of time, they're usually lipophilic. Very good, very good. Thanks for that. Um, so now let's get down to business. Um, we're here thinking about climate change and how climate change is impacting health. Um, there are all kinds of changes we're seeing in the global climate system due to increased greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Here in North Carolina, for example, we're seeing steady increases in extremely hot days and critically important is extremely hot nights. 
You have smoke for wildfires that are occurring both locally nearby here, but also from places as far away as Canada and the Pacific Northwest. We're also seeing increases in heavy rainfall in combination with massive changes to land use, which can really increase our potential for lots of big, heavy flooding. Um, but not just flooding, but also increased wet and humid conditions, which could be impacting things like pollen and molds and spores and this kind of thing. How do these particular kinds of environmental change we're seeing with climate disruption um, impacting the toxins that we're exposed to? Joel, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, sure. So when we talked about the various sources of these chemicals that get out in the environment, how they get to us, the processes by which they get to us are very, very affected by things like temperature. So for example, formation of ozone occurs more rapidly at high temperatures. Um, what, what, what is ozone? Where does this come from? Oh, sorry. So ozone is a reactive form of oxygen with three molecules, uh, three atoms of, of, of oxygen. And it's formed at the ground level by the interaction of sunlight with volatile organic compounds and mm -hmm. nitrogen-containing compounds. Uh, so we don't actually produce that much oxygen uh, ozone ourselves. We produce the conditions that allow it to be produced. And that causes all sorts of... of, of uh, mostly lung effects that Rob can tell us lots about. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a function in part of temperature. And so at a higher temperature, you expect to see more formation. Okay, That's, that's true for a fair number of chemicals. Um, you would also get more formation of methylmercury, for example, in, in sediments. This is a, another one of these biomagnifying uh, toxins. Meth methylmercury. Methylmercury. Yeah. So, so mercury, of course, is a naturally occurring element, and it can be converted into a form called methylmercury by microbes mm. that gets into the food chain and accumulates to very high levels as you go up the food chain and mercury is one of these heavy metals that rob was talking about yes yes exactly okay. exactly and and so that is gets into particularly fish and is is a of great health concern in particular for pregnant women mm. because it can have very terrible effects on 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 babies, as, on, as on the, the breast milk and the fat cells that, that Rob was talking about, this lipophilic, and and even the developing baby in, okay. in utero, neurological, yeah, yes, interesting, exactly. So that's another neurotoxicant, among <laughs> among other things, unfortunately. Um, another big effect of temperature is is actually transformation. So there may be chemicals that would move more quickly through the environment. So, hmm. for example, these persistent organic pollutants okay. you mentioned. One of the shocking things about them is we find very high levels of them in the Arctic. And mm. they, many of them were chlorinated pesticides that were used nowhere close to the Arctic. Mm. But because they're so persistent, they volatilize and move and end up depositing in colder climates. And so higher temperature could potentially actually cause more volatilization. Now, this is a term you've used a few times here, volatilization. Mm. What, yeah. what does that mean? I mean, I think about, you know, I sometimes have a volatile response to, you know, a cheeseburger sometime, but um, what do you mean by volatilization? What does this mean in, in the context of environmental toxicology? Yeah, we're talking about molecules moving into the gas phase and being able to be transported because of that through the atmosphere. Okay, so from the, a, a liquid phase or a solid phase to mm -hmm. the gas phase? Exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah. and persistent organic pollutants do that because they may be put in, in fields as a liquid pesticide or herbicide, and then with increasing temperatures, they volatilize, they become the gas form, and then those gases get transferred by atmospheric process all, from North Carolina all the way to the Arctic? Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So some of the highest levels, for example, of persistent organic pollutants in mother's milk are found in, in Inuit women. 
because of largely because of their their heavy fish fatty diet that they have to rely on because of their natural resources they have available. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, one thing we discussed also um, earlier on is, is this idea of exposure and dose. Can you talk a little bit more about how climate change might be impacting how people are exposed to these different toxins and also the doses they're getting? I imagine that volatility might come into play with this uh, dose. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because this is a key idea in toxicology okay. that you know everything we're exposed to is potentially toxic. It's a question of how much, as, as Rob sort of alluded to earlier. And so we really need to understand at what level of exposure do we start to see an effect. And so if climate change means that we're exposed to more, let's say, wildfire smoke because there are more wildfires or more methylmercury or ozone because they're being formed more quickly or more of a chemical because it is mobilized through the environment more rapidly, then that equates to potentially a higher dose. I should say, though, as a caveat, there may be circumstances in which breakdown occurs more rapidly. And so this would be a chemical-specific question that we would have to do research to understand for this particular chemical with higher temperature or higher rainfall or other climatic changes, how does that actually affect exposure? Okay. You know, one of the things we also talked about um, was also how because of climate, we also change our patterns of movement. So maybe if it's a very, very hot day, we might be spending more time inside or people who are outside on a very, very hot day might be exposed to more of this volatile chemicals. Can you talk a bit more about that and what that might look like here in North Carolina? Yeah, so uh, work by our colleague Heather Stapleton, who's an environmental chemist at the Nicholas School, uh, it's, it's not yet published, so I, I, I can't give all the full details, but what she's been studying is the volatilization, so the movement to the gas phase of flame retardant chemicals and plasticizer chemicals used in cars when the cars are hot. And there's a really dramatic increase in the amount of those chemicals in the interior of the car when the car gets hot. And again, that's not necessarily surprising. It's, it's, a, it's physical chemistry. <laughs> uh, but it does mean that under circumstances like that, particularly if someone is indoors in a hot environment, they're likely going to be exposed to much higher levels of some of these indoor air pollutants. And these flame retardants, these, these PFAS that we've been hearing about? Uh, the, the flame retardants are mostly in other categories. There's actually several different chemical categories that probably don't need to go into huge detail on. Uh, but the PFAS are actually interesting because they are also persistent organic pollutants. And do they um, volatilize with temperature also? And they do volatilize, yes. Uh, so so that's, that's one class. The flame retardants are all used. They're added to things like mattresses to keep them from bursting in the flame or, or the seat cushions in cars uh, with the, the good intention of, of protecting people from fire. However, they do, we are increasingly understanding, have health effects and uh, you know, is one of those unintended consequences that, that come along. Now, now, we're talking about persistent organic pollutants also, and maybe, Rob, you could talk about this for a second. Um, one thing that we're noticing in Durham, especially with our mar marginalized populations, economically disadvantaged people, is... Um, their housing isn't quite as high quality as um, other housing. So they might be exposed to more moisture inside the house. They may not have, um, either may not have air conditioning in the house, or if they have air conditioning units, they may not be able to afford to run it to dehydrate their homes a little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe um, sort of natural indoor pollutants like fungus and molds and things can impact people's health? Yeah, so one of the the issues, obviously, with climate change in particular is that the 
the vulnerable populations become even more vulnerable. And, and, and one of the natures related to that has to do with, uh, if, if you go with the idea of heat, is one of the ways that we manage heat, at least in this part of the country, is air conditioning. Well, um, you know, then, then the question becomes, based on your income level, do you have access to central heat and air? Uh, or are you using window units? Or do you really not have reliable, um, re reliable uh, ways to keep the temperature down, right? Um, and so that's one aspect. So in, in a lot of these circumstances, there's inadequate ability to condition the air in, in the home. And so that leads to two consequences. One is higher heat levels, one is higher, and the second is higher moisture. And as those of us that live in North Carolina realize, it's also <laughs> a very, very humid climate. Um, and, and so the potential there is to not only do some of the stuff that Joel was talking about, about volatilizing chemicals that are already in our, in our walls, because our, our, our walls are not um, benign substances. They also have toxic, potential toxic effects that can be worse in heat, in heat circumstances. Uh, then the second part is, is getting indoor molds. Um, and in fact, even in these homes, a lot of them are in floodplains or in areas that are frequently um, responding to, um, you know, these higher higher rain events of which are becoming more common. And, and I use the um, anecdote that um, it's almost impossible to talk to somebody who lives uh, east of Raleigh and not have them had some sort of flooding in their home. As you get out towards the sand hills uh, and the water table is quite low, if any of those people ever tell you that their home's not flooded, they're not telling you the truth. Uh, and so the combination of those things, both the, the indoor organics as well as the molds, um, clearly relate to things that happen uh, in terms of health effects, in terms of things like asthma um, uh, and chronic lung diseases and exacerbating those diseases and, and leading to uh, enhanced even cardiovascular effects that occur as a result of those. Um, so it's a big issue, um, and and one that there is impacting the people who have the least ability to respond. Um, uh, and I think that's going to be one of the major th things about climate change is how that affects health in the most vulnerable. So it sounds like from what we've been talking about, the lungs are impacted greatly by some of these toxins and allergens that are in the environment and inside the home. Can you tell us more about what's happening to the lungs and sort of what symptoms someone who has been affected would be noticing? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the most common uh, diseases that increases with industrialization and therefore exposure to a variety of, of toxicants that you develop as a product of sort of how we live our lives as an industrialized society is asthma. Uh, so asthma is an allergic disease. Um, it is essentially, you know, a, uh, the body becoming responsive to things it would normally not respond to. Uh, and when it does that, it causes irritation and inflammation in the lung. Uh, and that's experienced as things like wheezing, uh, tightness in the chest, shortness of breath, uh, and for people with asthma, that can be to specific things. So a lot of people with asthma will talk about, uh, I can't hang around the people that have a lot of perfume on because that just makes me start to wheeze. Um, but one of those things is indoor molds. 
Uh, and certainly uh, there are a variety of ways that those indoor molds can be allergens. They're in some cases directly themselves do they cause allergic airways disease. And then in other cases, they're sort of irritants that add on to the things that already make people uh, not feel well. Um, to the point that in certain circumstances that um, those molds can be so bad that people can't live in their homes anymore. Is that like the black mold that we sometimes hear about? Black mold. I mean, I think black mold, it's, it sounds uh, terroristic. So it's like it this. It sounds nefarious. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. Does, it's, it's got this like, so it, it, I think that's glommed onto the media. But you know, the reality is there are multiple different types of molds. Okay. Um, uh, and, and those molds and spores can actually cause uh, health problems, sometimes even to the point of actually causing infections in the lungs. So that's another uh, complication. Uh, or a different type of disease that, um, that I deal with more in my clinic, which is something called hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is sort of a, an adverse reaction in the lung itself to these molds. Um, and so there are a variety of different types of lung disease that can happen, and they all lead to really adverse symptoms. And all I can tell you is, is there's nothing worse that I know of than being short of breath. There's nothing more terrorizing. There's nothing more scary there's nothing uh, that drives people more crazy than being short of breath or coughing, and those are the predominant symptoms in most of those individuals. Rob, can you talk a little bit more about this? Uh, tell me the name again, the hypersensitive. So hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So L sorry. Hi hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Pneumonitis, thank you. Uh, basically, all it means is like what it kind of sounds like. It's a hypersensitive act interaction or reaction that leads to pneumonitis or inflammation in the lung. Um, in, as opposed to asthma is an air, airway disease, so the lung is kind of divided up into the airways that supply air, and the lung tissue or parenchyma, which is where they're responsible for gas exchange. So asthma affects the airways. This hypersensitivity pneumonitis is actually the lung tissue itself. Uh, so it's a little bit different, but actually a lot of what it looks like pathologically is very similar. It's this sort of inflammatory reaction that occurs uh, that leads to abnormalities that can be fatal um, in those circumstances. And both asthma and this hypersensitivity pneumonitis uh, are, can be fatal lung diseases, so people die of these things. Um, and they're also much more common in groups that are poor, uh, and disadvantaged and live in environments that are more at risk. And so it is a health equity issue along those lines as well. And do you think that's because they are more exposed to the kind of irritants that can cause this or because they may have comorbidities associated or co or pre-existing conditions that can make it? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think it, it riffs a bit on what Joel talked about. Dose is important, right? Um, but also the duration of that exposure and the frequency of that exposure is also really important. So the, the repetitive nature of these exposures, the frequency, and how long they're in the environments. And then there is there, there are sensitivities. So I think we all th often think about gene-by-environment interactions where there's an interaction between the host or their genetics or their underlying, even things beyond genetics, things like comorbidities that they might come to the table with, and then the response to that environment. And so the balance between the two of them are quite important for how people get disease and their sensitivity to toxicants. So in the clinic or in the hospital, what do you do when you see a patient who has hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Yeah, so a lot of times you, you find you're, you're becoming an investigator. You're sort of digging into 
so where do you live? I mean, I have a whole long questionnaire that involves like, when was your house built? <laughs> um, you know, does it have a basement? Is it a crawl space? Does it have, you know, has, ha has it ever been flooded? Do you live in a floodplain? Do you, do you ever get mold in your, in your bathroom? Do you ever, you know, so I'm, you, you do a lot of detective work. Detective work. Um, I think also, too, the interesting thing over time that I've noticed is there's increasingly more awareness um, for individuals, and those individuals who are coming as patients are now actually talking more about it and asking sort of, you know, mm -hmm. should I replace mm -hmm. that? Should I, do I need to worry about that? Do I need to, I think there's much more, much of a greater uh, awareness than there used to be in terms of these various things that are causing problems. Could I jump in? Because something Rob said elicited a thought in my mind that I think really ties into our topic today. So Rob was talking about these different risk factors and exposure, comorbidities, genetic differences that we all have. Uh, but another one is simply the interaction, and, and we started getting at this earlier, with something like climate change. And, and I, th I think one of the really compelling examples is, is a, a disease called chronic kidney disease of unknown etiology, uh, CKDU. And that's being studied by a variety of people, including our colleague Nishad Jayasundara. And what's interesting about this is this is a, a kidney disease that occurs in hot regions of the world only, but not everybody that leaves and works in these hot regions has this disease. And so he's been trying to understand that, he and others. And what it really looks like is it's a combination of perhaps heat and dehydration stress that would be getting worse with climate change and exposure to chemicals, probably agrochemical uh, types of, of compounds. And so it's only when you have that combination, it appears, that this disease starts to show up. And so I think that's it's a, a really strong example of the kind of thing that we should be looking for. Dose matters, exposure matters, but then also these other stressors. And I, and I think that raises the point in part of what climate change is doing to human health, right? So uh, in, in, the, in the way that before that heat existed, that chemical exposure may not have been toxic exactly. in that group, exactly. but now it is. And so, and I think what we're going to observe is there are a variety of people um, who have a certain level of vulnerability, and there's a certain threshold for where they become vulnerable. And what, I'm, what I think and anticipate is gonna happen with climate change is the threshold for that vulnerability will be lower. And that might be heat related, that might just be the fact that they're exposed more often, that might be whatever. But one of the things that I think is gonna be really challenging in the future is really trying to identify the people that are gonna be mm. susceptible to the changes from climate change. Because in order to you know, try to intervene in that setting, you do have to identify those groups and who's gonna be vul vulnerable. And is it genetics, is it comorbidities, is it just the, the location of where they live, is it their socioeconomic status, and how do we define those? Because ultimately our interventions are gonna be, have to be grounded in that because mm -hmm. it's, it's not gonna be something that everybody experiences. But I do find that climate change is just gonna turn the game up on the system in a way that mm -hmm. will be meaningful. I wanna give an example of this if I can. It's also um, surprising populations that are coming up with some of these diseases in places you might not expect. So we're doing work in Nepal and um, it's not a particularly hot place. We're working in higher elevation areas, maybe two or 3,000 meters where people are living. And these populations are suffering chronic kidney disease. Mm. 
And the interesting thing has to do with migration. So in these communities, a lot of people have been migrating for economic reasons to the Middle East, working in the Middle East under very hot conditions mm -hmm. um, for two, three, four, five years, and coming back to their villages, and they're suffering from kidney disease, and people can't figure out why. So some of these diseases may not be happening in the region where you're working, but because of migration, especially economic migration, these vulnerable populations, these more marginalized populations, seeking economic opportunity in different places, maybe traveling with these diseases they brought in other places. Yeah, and let me be clear. The, the one other thing is that I do feel about climate change is it is something we all share um, and is going to force the world to deal with it globally because even if you don't live in a disadvantaged place, you've got migration from other areas, um, even if you think that you aren't going to be susceptible to it, all you have to do is realize that um, that you know super large air pollution events from wildfires are going to affect major urban cities that don't have any relationship to where the fires are located. So mm -hmm. this is going to be a global problem that's going to affect all of us. Um, and so just thinking about it in isolation is not going to work either. So it sounds kind of scary in the sense that there are a lot of diseases that are becoming more frequently seen in patients, um, but it sounds like there are also some new diseases that are cropping up as a result of climate change. Yes, I would totally agree. I think, um, I mean, one of the things that's true from the standpoint of thinking about disease is that we're also living longer, right? And we're living longer globally. Um, there's greater access to a variety of sort of the industrialized way of life, which has its benefits of improving longevity. Uh, and so in those circumstances, you're also getting populations that are gonna live longer and gonna have diseases. So you might see some diseases that you weren't seeing before. Um, but certainly, I think also exposure is going to be different, too, in those, in those groups. So you're going to start to see things that you didn't see before. So I think it will be a mix of, of diseases that we know already exist and that may become more prominent and also diseases that we don't know. I think the third part is true is that we also greater awareness. And so hopefully things like this kind of podcast and others for people who are like medical students is that you're more aware of what actually is in your environment and, you know, when I first started as a medical student, we didn't really talk about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But now, like, you know, I, I work in the VA, so we talk about Agent Orange all the time. And so I think there is a greater awareness of the interaction of our environment with our health. Um, uh, and that's going to lead to us understanding greater interactions than we did before that might have existed anyway. We just weren't paying attention. Right. And it almost is highlighting how it's really important for medical people so medical trainees, especially to stay in contact with researchers and kind of figure out what's new and what's coming into the environment and how we need to be aware of the exposure and doses that patients may be exposed to. Sure. And, and I think, you know, a lot of times we'll see, you know, a disease and be like, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, your high blood pressure, you ate too much, you didn't. Uh, and I think we have to have a, a healthy understanding for there may be specific things that are new to that environment that are actually making that more prominent and being more curious about what's really going on. And I, I think our patients are doing that too um, because they want to know what's in their environment as well and they understand that their environment's interacting more. So I, f I find like I have more, many more conversations from that are patient-derived about what's in my environment and is that making me sick uh, as well. So I, 
I think it's not only just the physician side, but it's also that the consumers of, of healthcare are going to be demanding more information about what's really in their environment and how it might be making them sick. Right. So this is all a lot to digest, especially as a medical trainee who is thinking about how climate change will be impacting myself and patients and just the community around me. Um, so as many of the people that are listening to this podcast are going to be both impacted by climate change and caring for those with acute impacts, what can we do about these coming challenges? Have there been any success stories so far? So the work that my lab has been doing following disasters, including earthquakes, floods, and heat waves, clearly shows that not all people are being impacted equally. Communities marginalized by economic disparities, racial ethnic discrimination, and even gender and sexual minorities suffer a disproportionate degree of impact from these disasters. Do toxins discriminate in ways that impact these populations more? Unfortunately, they do. So we know there's a very wide range of, of socioeconomic and, and racial differences in exposure to everything from air pollution to lead in indoor environments, such as coming from paint in people's homes, to whether people's homes are located near Superfund or other very highly polluted sites. And that's problematic in the United States and, and dramatic, and even more so if we look around the world globally. The, the disparities are just enormous, so they will combine with the disparities you're talking about. Can you tell us what Superfund is? Yes, sorry. So Superfund sites, it's with a D at the end, not Superfund, uh, are sites that are designated by the United States EPA as being exceptionally highly contaminated. And when they are, they, 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 these sites are nominated by states, and then the EPA examines them and decides whether to designate them as a Superfund site. Uh, and if that site is so designated, they, it is... Um, essentially blocked off and ultimately remediated at, uh, at taxpayer expense. The, that's where the super fund part comes from because it's expensive. Gotcha. So people are living around super fund sites and they have to move? They either have to move or they have to resign themselves to living in those sites. And of course, that's one of the very difficult things is often you might want to move, but you might not have the resources to move because you are uh, not you, you don't have the economic means to do so. Yeah, the similar example is is where do we build highways and roads? And those r highways and roads go through marginalized communities. And and we know that sort of admissions from roadside, uh, from roads are actually quite toxic. Um, but those communities, that's where they're forced to live. Um, and so it's it's a, you know, there isn't, there aren't always options, and I think that's part of the hard part mm -hmm. um, for thinking about exposures. And that happened in Durham, North Carolina, too, with mm -hmm. the Durham Freeway going through the Haiti community. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and it's been true in so, so many communities. Um, and also just even where uh, in newly developing communities where the access to certain homes at a certain price point uh, or living conditions are in areas that are around toxic sites as opposed to areas that are wealthier that live uh, further away. And so even as new communities are developed, they're developed in a way that, that um, concentrate the toxic exposures to people who have less means. Yeah. Uh, so, Brian, we just talked about the uneven distribution of natural disasters and also of, of toxicant exposure, and I'm curious if there's a connection here. So when there are these natural disasters, do you s have, have you looked at an increase in exposure to toxicants? 
Yeah, you know, it's, I'm glad you asked that, Joel, because you're not, we've been working with the United Nations Environmental, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, to do post-disaster reconnaissance in areas that have been hit by earthquakes, tsunamis, um, typhoons, tropical cyclones. And each one of these places, we end up seeing this kind of toxic soup that mm. um, seems like it arises. I don't know anything about toxicity, but we see oil spills and we see um, electrical wires and things have been burnt. And I imagine there must be a lot of toxic exposure going to people that are now largely environmental refugees and staying in highly crowded areas. I wonder if that does have an impact on people's health, even that, even that short-term exposure that happens in a post-disaster scenario where all of a sudden these things that have been wrapped up and contained in either oil tanks or in electrical insulation are now burning and becoming volatilized, that term I learned today. <laughs> I would I would assume there that, that that's absolutely the case. I think you know when you burn things, we think about how bad it is to burn gasoline, but it's much much worse to burn a city. And like the fires that just happened in Hawaii. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. I mean, clearly when we you know when we talk about wildfires, like it's not the it's not the um, it's not just the wood. It's the tires, the batteries, the cars, the buildings, the everything else that's burning with it. And I think that's the same. And when you're thinking about these natural disasters where you're getting these collections of things that would normally be separated but now are all concentrated in, in smaller areas and then have been combusted in, in a lot of circumstances. So a fire that happens in British Columbia could volatilize something that then impacts my health here in North Carolina. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. So this is all a lot to digest, especially um, for me as a medical trainee, thinking about all the things that I'm going to need to stay aware of and keep um, taking in information about climate change and how it's impacting people, everyone. Um, so as many of the people that are listening to this podcast are going to be both impacted by climate change and caring for those with um, acute impacts, what can we do about these coming challenges? Um, and have there been any success stories that we can take in, as, take in as examples? I'm really glad you asked that, Tricia. Thanks for keeping us away from all doom and gloom because there are some wonderful success stories. Uh, you know, we there are some public health success stories. We have much cleaner air in this country thanks to the Clean Air Act than we used to. Now there are still areas that are problematic, but overall it's much better. We have much cleaner water than we used to. Rivers don't catch on fire. We've dealt with really subtle, difficult problems like lead poisoning. Um, yes, you can have high levels of exposure that cause outright poisoning, but much lower levels that affect IQ, that affect behavior. And, you know, people like you that were born decades after I was, you have a few extra IQ points because of these changes that we made. And these were led by people like uh, Herb Needleman, a pediatrician. And, and, and that's a difficult one. That's not a, an effect that occurs only because of lead, right? There's a lot of things that affect these things like IQ. So it was a very striking success of a subtle problem. Um, and then the other, another one that I'll, I'll mention, particularly in the context of future healthcare providers, is the story of diethylstilbestrol. Uh, this was a drug, a synthetic estrogen given to women to present, prevent miscarriage. Um, and when, when was this um, being This given was in the 1950s um, and maybe 60s. And the unfortunate effect of this, among others, was uh, a very large, about a 40-fold increase in the rate of a rare vaginal cancer, mm. as well as a variety of other uh, reproductive system-related effects, uh, infertility, um, prostate cancer in men, a, a variety of effects. But this was really discovered because a clinician, Arthur Herbst, 
uh, noticed this increase in this very unusual cancer in a very young population. And he talked to the mothers of these women that had the cancers, and the mothers said, and he thought about it, I wonder if it was that drug I took mm -hmm. when I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a beautiful illustration of the ability of a clinician to pay attention to things and notice something and, and really solve a mystery. Back to Rob's point about solving mysteries, you all have the potential to do that in the future for climate change related, whether in the context of, of toxic and exposure or not, diseases. And uh, you know, thank goodness we'll be in great hands with, with you all in the future. I have a positive note for this too, because I honestly, we, this is a global problem and it'll have a global solution and it will unite us globally because we'll have to deal with it globally. I mean, there is, there's a lot of positive within this. This is going to force us as a, as a society to think globally. As we did with the ozone hole. Yeah. And, the, and those the, things the, are solvable. The ozone hole, Joel? Well, the ozone hole was caused by the release of chlorinated fluorocarbons and other molecules that people used for industrial processes, but they were used by all sorts of people all over the world. And so we were going to, these, these chemicals got up into the stratosphere and caused the degradation of ozone that protects us from ultraviolet radiation, creating a hole in certain parts of the atmosphere. And it was not soluble by any one or two or three countries because these chemicals were being used by essentially all countries. So you had to have a global agreement. And there was great success in doing that. And because of that, we don't have exceptionally high rates of skin cancer currently. <laughs> you know, it's, I have to tell you a quick story. It's funny. I was living in New Zealand at the time when the ozone hole was just starting to, starting to heal up, and I was living pretty far south when we were actually under mm. the ozone hole, and I got my first sunburn ever. Yeah. And it really hurt. I was like, how? Oh, I feel bad for you guys who get burned all the time. Well, I want to thank you for um, ending on a positive note. Um, I really appreciate your time coming in and spending time with us, Rob and Joel. Um, Looking forward to learning more about this and seeing how we can work together interdisciplinarily to figure out how to um, keep these increasing toxins that are coming into our environment from climate change from impacting our health. You're welcome. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.